This episode is sponsored by Lloyds Banking Group, serving Britain's communities and households for more than 250 years. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today is one of three candidates vying to be the next leader of the Labour Party. She grew up in Manchester to a historically left-wing family, the daughter of renowned Marxist academic Deepak Nandi. Her grandfather was a Liberal MP who later sat in the Lords. She entered Parliament in 2010 as the MP for Wigan, where she was quickly touted as a rising star and potential future leader. After Labour's disappointing election result in 2019, she made her move and threw her hat in the ring. Explaining her decision, she said, Now is not the time to steady the ship or try not to oversteer. What is needed are the hard yards for winning the argument inch by inch in town halls, workplaces and pubs. This is where we fight to regain people's trust. The next Labour leader will have to be up for a scrap, willing to run to places where we are loathed, take the anger on the chin, make and win the argument. Since then, she has been the surprise success story of the contest, making the final ballot when more well-known politicians, such as Jess Phillips and Emily Thornberry, fell short. I'm delighted to be joined by Lisa Nandy. So thank you for joining us today, Lisa. As I mentioned in the introduction, um, you had a political upbringing in some ways. Uh, Your father was a Marxist academic. So was politics, and particularly left-wing politics, part of your life from an early age? I mean, it was a normal upbringing, so I didn't spend a lot of time going to rallies or, you know, protesting against Margaret Thatcher. I spent most of my time playing with my friends and going to school and generally getting terrible school reports from the teachers and that sort of thing. But I suppose it was quite unusual in the sense that it was a very political time. It was Manchester in the 1980s, a lot of friends losing their jobs, you know, real feeling from the community that we were under attack from our government. And my parents were pretty involved, so they did a lot around the Mossad riots, which I was too young to remember. I was only, I think, one or two when that happened. But it was just down the road from our house and... It was a time when there was huge amounts of police brutality, particularly to young black men who also didn't have economic opportunities, massive amounts of unemployment in that community. And the Mossad riots really were a sort of backlash against all of that and a system that was completely and utterly unfair. And so my parents were very involved, really, in trying to make sure that there was a community response, that people were heard, that there was a fight back against some of the things that were happening at that time and they've both come from political backgrounds and had been political all their lives felt very very strongly about what was happening in the 1980s so I suppose it was unusual in that sense in that my parents were very much at the heart of some of those things and it just can't help but make an impression on you. Your father is a Marxist academic so I wondered does that mean your kind of your children's reading list varied from perhaps <laughs> what my childhood reading list would be did it have much intellectual heft uh, you know yeah, I was reading Das Kapital at the age of four exactly <laughs> no I wasn't the thing that him being not just a Marxist I mean he's Indian so I suppose one of the things that people often in this country don't understand about India is that the politics there is very different and people will quite happily vote for the Communist Party, you know, partly because they they like the ideology, they like the idea that, you know, from his ability to each according to his need is a sort of good guiding principle in Indian politics, but also that, you know, people will vote communist because they get the bins emptied and they get the drains dealt with. And so it's it's a very different setup, really. 
And, you know, in this country, it's seen as something incredibly extreme, but there's a Marxist strand of thought that's always run through British politics that's been quite influential within the Labour Party and on the Labour Party that's quite important. His Marxism obviously had an influence on me, but probably more important was the fact that he's an academic and he likes to test the strength of arguments at the hardest point, not the easiest point. And it's one of the things that's always been important to me in politics. You know, when you're taking on the Tories... You don't take on the Tories about what they're doing to the NHS, as important as that is. You don't confine yourself simply to talking about those issues. People in this country generally know that Labour is for a well-funded National Health Service and the Tories do quite a bit of damage to it. You've got to take on the Tories on things like their management of the economy as well. And the fact that if you have a lot of people in this country who aren't doing well, then it puts a break on local economies, stops people spending, stops businesses from thriving. It's really, really important to take on your opponents at the strongest point of their argument and not just the weakest. And I suppose that's one of the things that I got from him because he's an academic and because he's interested in the power of arguments. And growing up, did you have any early career ambitions? We've had lots of guests on this podcast. I think we had Therese Coffey on the podcast and she said her early ambition was to be a mechanic nun. Okay. Um, Therese has a a flat in the same block as me in London and I'm going to ask her about that next time we're in the lift because that sounds completely bizarre. Um, (laughs) I think... I mean, various different things at different points. When I was a teenager, I wanted to be an international pop superstar. I still would very much like that, but I've had to restrict myself to watching from the sidelines. I'm a big fan of Britney Spears. I've been to every UK concert she's ever done. I wanted to be a baker for a while, but I think that might just because I was quite greedy and I just liked eating things from the bakery. And I definitely had an ambition to go into space at one point. I'm quite obsessed with space and space travel. I think it's one of the most, like, as an adult, I've come to understand that it's one of the most incredible sort of international endeavours that we've ever embarked on and the way in which different governments at different times have worked together to push the boundaries of human knowledge seems to me to be amazing. But I think as a kid, it was more the idea of just flying around in space that seemed quite <laughs> good fun. So nothing, nothing that really translated into anything concrete as I got older, unfortunately. But the ambition was there. And you went on to study politics at Newcastle University. What was the student scene like at that time? Was it was there a strong political beat? Because we often hear about, you know, um, Cambridge and Oxford and, you know, where Boris Johnson and others were. So what, what was Newcastle like? I don't really remember it being political at all, actually. I mean, I was there was definitely student politics. I've never really been a fan of a lot of the things that happen in student politics. It's quite a brutal environment from what I can tell from the outside. And so I'd chosen to go and um, work on the student newspaper instead because that seemed like quite a fun thing to do. And it was it was good fun, but we also, you know, as well as larking around most of the time, we did also manage to cover quite a few good stories about what was happening in the university and, and in Newcastle as well. And we broke a few national stories, which was my first sort of taste of, you know, how national politics and journalism work but it wasn't very political actually I think some of my tutors remarked on it at the time about how sort of apolitical people were I mean obviously I studied politics so the political people were often on that course and I've got a lot of friends from that time who who stayed interested and involved one way or another but really it wasn't that sort of it wasn't that sort of era I don't think I guess that's maybe because it was around the time that the Labour government had come to power about couple of years earlier and 
I think there was just a feeling really that progress was inevitable and that the world would just continue to get better and fairer and for a lot of young people of my generation I think that was generally the sense that we carried with us into adulthood and through adulthood and that's why you know, it's one of the reasons why the very dramatic sort of upheavals of the last few years have been quite a shock to my generation one of the things that I've learned is that progress is not inevitable and if you want a fairer country you do have to go out and fight for it and defend the progress that's already been made. So at what point did you decide that you wanted a career in politics? You studied politics and you went on to work for a Labour MP quite soon after graduating. Yeah, I suppose it was more a series of decisions. So I wanted to study English literature at university and my sister was far more academic than I was and had gone to Oxford to do it a few years earlier. And so I was fairly sure I didn't want to set myself up for that level of comparison, especially because I would fail the test. So I'd been thinking about doing history. I decided to do politics in the end because it sounded a bit more vibrant as a course much more debate and that that sort of thing so and I've always liked working in teams and sparking ideas off other people so I went off to do politics for that reason and then I went to work for an MP because I was casting around when I left university for what to do and I really didn't know I think a lot of young people don't know at that age what they want to do and I was no exception and so Somebody had suggested to me that if you work for an MP, then you would learn about lots of the jobs that were out there that you wouldn't necessarily know about when you're at university. And it was really, really good advice, actually. It's probably one of the best pieces of advice I've ever been given because I ended up working for a campaign group MP, Neil Gerrard, who's still a great friend to this day. And it was during the time of the Iraq war, so it was an incredibly difficult time, especially because he was going up against his own party in opposing the Iraq war, which at the time wasn't a popular thing to do with the public or in Parliament. And so it was a sort of series of steps, really, about just making decisions based on sort of opening up horizons and trying to find new opportunities. And I actually left Parliament quite quickly after working for him because I just I felt that Parliament under the Blair government was very sort of constrained and I just felt that if change was going to come it was going to come from the outside and that's how I ended up going off and working for Centrepoint. It was sort of the decision to work for Centrepoint in the end that led me back to Parliament because just the experience of working with homeless teenagers and then later refugee children taught me that as much as we could do with and for those young people from outside, in the end, it was about power, who has it and who doesn't, and only politics can change that. And that's what led me back into politics and into Parliament a few years later. Yeah, you were selected as a candidate for Wigan in 2010. How did you find the selection process? It was quite unusual in that a lot of people were going through selection at that time because there'd been the MPs' expenses scandal. So I'd never done anything like that before. And... You know, just finding the confidence to sort of put your name forward. I think I think that is quite a hard thing to do. And I think women find it harder. I certainly found it quite difficult. If I hadn't had a very supportive group of friends who were saying, you've absolutely got to do this, then I don't think I ever would have done it. Because it's not like putting yourself forward as the Labour candidate. You're not standing for the party at that point. It's just, it's a bit like standing to be leader of the Labour Party. It is deeply personal. However much people say to you, you know, it's nothing personal when they're not voting for you it is personal because it is about you and your qualities and people's assessment of you and I don't think if I'm honest that I would have got selected in a different time if there hadn't been so many people going through the process because I was very out of step with the 
sort of current tone and direction of travel of the Labour Party. I've been very, very critical of the party about what we'd done in government to refugees and asylum seekers. I was working in Yarlswood with refugee children at the time and I was appalled by the policies around detention and enforced destitution. And so I think it would have been quite difficult in that era for someone like me to be selected, except that you had this huge exodus from Parliament and there wasn't the same level of command and control from the top of the party as there would have been otherwise. So I just t- sort of took a punt, really, and you know, rang up party members and said, I'd like to be your candidate. It is political. People want to assess your who you know what you stand for and what you're about but it's personal too when party members are choosing their local mp they want to know you know they want to get a measure of you really they want to know that they can trust you and you know in many ways you're going to have to go off and make judgment calls without their input you know quick decisions and things that you've got to come back and defend to party members and they wanted to know that they they sort of got the measure of me really so it's quite a personal process you talk a lot about your family and your upbringing and where you come from and, and those sorts of things. And so it's quite gruelling in that respect, but it was, I, I suppose, sorry to, to go on a bit, but I, I suppose the thing that really, for me, that was really rewarding was that it was a real leap of faith for party members here to choose me as the candidate. They'd never had a woman MP before in the whole history of parliamentary democracy in this town. There certainly hadn't been anyone as young as me and there hadn't been a half-Indian candidate before. And so they had to take a sort of bit of a leap of faith, but they did, and the public were incredibly supportive. They wanted change, and they wanted something different. And that's one of the things that I've been saying to party members during the leadership contest, is that the public is ready for something different, and we've got to be brave enough to to choose it. Yeah, and then on entering Parliament, you became a PPS to Tessa Jell, but then you were a shadow minister. So you seem to be on quite a, I suppose, a fast track for promotion to the point that obviously we're, we're going quite fast in time here. But when Ed Miliband stepped down in 2015, even back then there were rumours that you might be a future leader. You endorsed Andy Burnham in the end. But I was wondering, did you think about running for leader in 2015? I was asked about it. I was approached by various different parts of the Labour movement about it. But if I'm really honest, no, I didn't. I'd only been in Parliament five years. I know that Ed had been in Parliament five years, but he'd worked in the political system for a long time before that. And I really felt like I was learning the craft at that stage. I'd also, you know, I was about to have a baby and that was obviously one factor. But I I really felt that, If you want to stand to be leader of the Labour Party, you have to be absolutely clear in your mind about why you're doing it and what you can add that nobody else can. And I didn't feel that I was there at that stage at all. I I didn't come into Parliament, if I'm honest, to, to seek the highest office. I came into Parliament for the same reason that I went into the voluntary sector before that, which was to try and make a difference and make a contribution whichever way that I could. But by the time that we got to... 2019 and the impending election and I could see what was about to happen and I've been warning about it shouting about it often shouting into a void about it unable to get a hearing in the party and I knew that the entire Labour base was about to collapse beneath our feet right across the country I could see why it was happening I could see a scenario unfolding where we didn't understand that well even after the most seismic defeat 
in our heartlands that we've ever experienced. I could see a scenario in which we would go into it saying, look, it's we've just got to have a slightly different manifesto. We've Maybe we just changed the leader. Perhaps we can just fix this by tweaking at the edges. And I knew that that would spell disaster for the Labour Party. I genuinely don't know if we'll survive that sort of approach. And so that was the moment when I knew that I had to do it and that it was it was quite personal that it, there wasn't anyone else who was going to step forward and say the things that needed to be said at that moment and do the things that needed to be done and that's what was different between 2015 and 2019. I want to talk about your leadership bid obviously there's a few weeks of the contest still to go but just briefly before we do I just want to ask a bit more about where you sit I suppose for listeners who don't I suppose go for the full criminology of the Labour Party because you described yourself as soft left you said previously that your dad thinks you're comparatively right wing to him I think he's told you of since but you're one of several shadow cabinet ministers who quit in 2016 in what is known as the Corbyn coup you helped co-chair Owen Smith's campaign to you know I've Corbyn and get a new leader so how would you describe your politics because from some of the previous things it always it's going to sound a bit blunt it feels as though you are to the the right of Jeremy Corbyn but perhaps to the left of Ed Miliband and I I know that would be a clumsy way of putting it but perhaps you can do it better than me I mean I think I think that might be right actually although it's in terms of the sort of characterization of where I sit I suppose I've always driven people mad because it's really, really hard to find a neat space to put me. In terms of the traditional left-right politics, I suppose I'm I'm very much on the left in that I believe in state intervention, although I don't necessarily believe in great monolithic state structures. I believe in, you know, devolved structures, more people being empowered, you know, be far more interested in setting up energy co-ops around the country and making sure that we could get new entrants into the energy market than I would in just buying back the big six and handing huge amounts of profit to shareholders as a consequence. But I believe in the power of state intervention. I believe in taxation. One of the things that I you know, talked about in the campaign, I think I was the only person to do it, is why tax is a good thing. And it has to be fair and it has to be feasible, but actually it's the contribution that you make to a civilised society. I've always fought for more compassion, including against the last Labour government, for people who are in the benefit system, for people with disabilities, who often are stripped of the means to lead dignified larger lives. And I wanted to see far fairer and more equal treatment for asylum seekers and refugees and better treatment of immigrants. So, you know, in all those respects, I suppose I'm very much on the left of the Labour Party, but I'm also very non-tribal. I believe you have to work with whoever it takes in order to get change for people, the the young people I used to work with at Centrepoint and the Children's Society couldn't wait for me to, you know, work out whether I, my principles were compromised by working with outside parties. They just needed change straight away. And so I've always believed that it's better to work with other people and to bring the broadest range of people with you. And I suppose when I parted ways with Jeremy and with his team was where I saw our politics becoming very narrow, very factional, very angry and very tribal. And that is a dead end for Labour and it's a dead end for the country. And so being on the, I I mean, there's got to be a better word, hasn't there, than soft left, but being on the soft left of the Labour Party for me is as much about an approach to politics that is open and plural as it is about where you sit on the traditional left-right spectrum. 
Is there anything in the campaign that you've regretted looking back on it? I mean, clearly um, the trans issue debate has come up a lot as something quite a lot of the candidates have obviously flacked for. But is there anything looking back that you do regret? I'm not sure. I mean, it's a bit early to say because obviously we're (laughs) sort of, weirdly, despite the fact that it seems completely irrelevant when the whole country's dealing with coronavirus, but weirdly we're still in the campaign at the moment. So it's a bit hard to to have an honest and proper reflection. I'm sure there'll be things that I think I could have done differently. But on the trans issue, if I'm honest, I I don't regret it because having signed that pledge, there were parts of it that I thought, you know, perhaps I wouldn't have phrased it like that. But having signed that pledge and experienced the backlash that I did, it just gave me such a small taste of what people, trans men and women in this country, are having to deal with on a daily basis that it made me even more determined to speak up and make my voice heard alongside theirs and that it wouldn't be their fight alone. So in terms of regrets, that isn't one. I think just generally on the issue of pledges, one of the things that I have reflected on during the campaign is how many pledges there now are and how they're used within the Labour Party in order to try to almost to box in people so that they can't use their own independent judgment and make their own decisions at a future date you know trying to get the Labour leader to sign up to things that later they can be held to account for and actually it just seems to me that that's the sign of a party that has lost its self-confidence that you know they're symbolic of something a bit more pernicious in our politics that we need to really trust each other again and we need to trust our judgment and we need to trust our instincts and when you're selecting the leader of the Labour Party you should be selecting the person who you think you know in times of extreme stress and pressure will make the right judgment calls rather than somebody who's signed up to as many pledges as possible so that you can hold them to account and box them in when when things happen and if the last few weeks has shown anything it's that judgment really really matters and I was quite critical of the government quite early on because they were getting it wrong but I think that was the right thing to do is to speak out about that because judgment does matter and we saw it in 2008 with the global financial crash I think most people now accept that Gordon Brown called that right and did the right things in order to stabilise people's pensions and life savings and it will matter going forwards that the government makes the right decisions. A few final things just just to end on you mentioned factionalism and perhaps under under Corbyn how how it had become too factional in the spirit of cross-party cooperation do you have many friends who are Tories? Well, I don't have many friends for stop, especially after making the decision to run to be leader of the Labour Party. But I do have I do have mates who are Tories. I have friends from university who have voted Tory more often than not. One, in fact, has always voted Tory. I've got a lot of constituents who are Tories as of December the 12th. So I do spend quite a lot of time talking to people who support the Tory party. And I'm going to continue to do that. And in the House of Commons as well, there is definitely something about how often people are friends across political party divides, partly because you're not really jostling or in competition with one another. You know, you're not competing to be on the same shows or to get, you know, the same front bench jobs and that sort of thing. So those friendships often are quite close. I couldn't I wouldn't say I've got really, really close mates who are in the Tory party, but I've definitely worked well with other Tory MPs. I mean, one example of that is Alistair Burt, who was my MP growing up in Bury and was enormously helpful to me when we were trying to close down Yarlswood 
immigration detention centre and he was the local MP by that point in Bedford and he was always very supportive of me and James Frith who was the, his successor in Berry North and others while we were in Parliament and actually helped me when he was a Foreign Office Minister to get one of my constituents out of prison in a foreign country who was a journalist who was stranded there so you know these things matter actually when we say we're not going to be friends with Tories what we mean is that we're going to you know we're essentially not going to utilise what we need in order to do our jobs it's not how parliament works and we, we we've got to be more honest than that we've got to do better than that I think now we haven't spoken about the coronavirus much on this podcast partly because it's so overwhelming I think it, it can be quite healthy to talk about other things yeah. um, but you've been very vocal about where the government have in some ways gone right but also where they've gone wrong and you've spoken about a coalition Cobra group on coronavirus I, I wondered is there an argument that actually the Labour leadership contest the results should be brought forward because at the moment we are all expecting a new Labour leader this is a time for leadership as you've touched on so perhaps we don't need two more weeks. Well it's difficult because party members were told that they had a certain amount of time to vote and there's been a huge problem with the ballot papers so a lot of party members still haven't received their ballot papers and obviously they need to have the chance to make the decision not least because they've been thinking harder about this I think than any other contest I've seen close up in the last decade so it's important that we get it right but I think we can show that sort of leadership over the next few weeks anyway I had a conference call with Jeremy Jonathan Ashworth Keir Becky and myself last week to talk about coronavirus and the party's response I'm trying to show the sort of leadership that I would show as leader of the opposition during this campaign and I think you know by reaching out to other people by being honest about where the government is getting it right as well as where they're getting it wrong. I think you can show that sort of leadership by coming forward with constructive proposals for what to do. This weekend I was out talking about what should happen with self-employed people, millions of people who haven't currently got the security that they need. I think you can show that sort of leadership during the campaign and in a couple of weeks' time we could be in a very strong position to work closely with the government in order to get us through this crisis. Final um, three things. Firstly, I think a lot of people are spending time alone, perhaps in their own flats, self-isolating. Politics is also very stressful. I was wondering, how do you deal with stress? We had Emily Thornbury on last week and she said, cycling helps, but so does the silk cut and the gin. <laughs> It's very heavily. I guess I do a lot of running, so it's easier in Wigan because we've got a lot of countryside around here. So I do do quite a lot of running. I took up the piano a few years ago. I thought that would help. I'm really, really terrible at it. And in a weird way, that does help because I have to concentrate so hard even to find middle C that it means that I can't think about anything else. Does your partner um, take the same view of your piano playing? <laughs> no, absolutely not. So a few years ago, I tried to do my grade four and he had to listen to me plink plonking the same songs with one hand over and over again for about six months. And I don't think I'll ever be able to do another grade again because I don't think he can live through it, especially not now we're all stuck in the house together. But I guess the other way that I deal with stress and pressure is that I lean into it. I've always found that the, the easiest way for someone like me to cope with stress is to take on the thing that's that's the root cause of it and go and deal with it. And you know it's one of the reasons that I stood for the leadership in the end because I just felt I was watching what was about to happen to the Labour Party and I felt this is the moment the potential for Labour to completely collapse and to lose 
to lose the people who actually built this party for good. I just felt that I couldn't sit at the sidelines and watch it happen. That would be far too stressful, much easier to get in amongst it and see if I could change it. And that, you know, I reckon Emily's exactly the same, actually. In, you know, all the time that I've worked with Emily, she is exactly the same. But I'm with her on the gin. Gin does also help. You've previously said after the results were announced, you would go for drinks with your fellow contenders, <laughs> one for every hustings. I think that was around 40 drinks. Coronavirus obviously means pubs are closing. Are we looking at a house party app type session or was it just on hold indefinitely? It's going to be like virtual drinking, isn't it? It's exactly. just going to be awful. It's going to be me, me, Kira and Becky on a Zoom call, just drinking shots. I think given what's happened in the last couple of weeks, I mean, I don't think there's ever been an end to a Labour leadership contest quite like this. And given what's happened, I strongly suspect that we'll be on that Zoom call trying to work out together how we assist the government and challenge the government to make sure that we get the response to coronavirus right and strongly suspect although it breaks my heart to say it that the drinks might have to wait and finally just going to end with a question we ask everyone who comes on this podcast which is what is the worst advice you've ever been given it can be advice (laughs) you've ignored it can be advice you've accepted there's definitely one piece of advice that springs to mind which is when after I'd had my little boy I had him the week before the 2015 general election, which was the most catastrophic timing, and was back out on the campaign trail a couple of days later. And somebody said to me, if you're going to have another, you need to get on with it quickly. And I said, really, honestly, now is not the time. And he said, two is much easier than one. Now, I completely ignored that advice, and I think it's probably one of the best things that I ever did, because friends who have not ignored that advice finding especially with having to home educate now that two is not much easier than one so that is probably up there amongst the worst pieces of advice I've ever had and tellingly it came from a man so you can judge for yourself why he thought that Thank you, Lisa, and thank you for listening. And while we have you here, do make sure to tune in over the coming weeks. We will have the usual podcast with the single interview, as well as a selection of panel podcasts as supported by Lloyds, in which we're going to be exploring topics such as the domestic abuse bill and women's savings.